Blog Talk Radio. You have just connected with Parkinson's Recovery. This is Robert Rogers. I am really working on getting at the core of the factors that contribute to symptoms, and clearly dehydration has been identified as a factor that is at the top of the list. Since the body is made up of more than 50% water, clearly if the water is not in place, those very sensitive neurological networks are not going to function the way they need to. The actual physiological description of the neuron networks uh, that have been given to me by medical professionals has been that they really are very juicy. And they, of course, are also very sensitive cells, the most sensitive cells in the entire human body. So if we're not giving those cells the hydration that they need to function, it's very clear that they're going to be misfiring, struggling, and creating some aggravation in terms of mobility challenges as well as some neurological challenges. Dr. Bublik is a Ph.D. endocrinologist who uh, has done more research on hydration and dehydration in the body of anybody that I know in the world. He is actually from Australia, and uh, so what I'm going to do is to play basically four segments of that pre-recorded interview with uh, Dr. Bublik. I also want to say that uh, Dr. Bublik is also one of the creators, the uh, innovators of a, a homeopathic treatment that's used by many, many individuals uh, who have the symptoms of Parkinson's. This particular homeopathic treatment is called Aquas, and it is strongly recommended by a naturopath doctor from Australia whose name is Dr. John Coleman. John Coleman is a true zealot about aquas and uh, tells everybody he comes in contact with it's one of the treatments he took when he had Parkinson's to be able to actually become symptom-free today. The story behind the aquas is John was going around telling uh, everybody he knew that one of the things to consider would be to take the aquas, but people in the United States and Canada actually didn't have a good way of being able to order them or, or get any basic information about the aquas. So I was beginning to get a lot of calls from people. How can I order them? How can I get information about it, et cetera, et cetera? So I wound up creating a whole website uh, interface for people so that they could actually order them if they lived in the uh, Canada or the United States and so that I could learn more about the aquas myself and be able to answer some basic questions about how they are used and also uh, answer questions about shipments and that kind of thing. So uh, as part of my role at Parkinson's Recovery, I took on responsibility to be able to know more about this particular homeopathic remedy. It is homeopathic, and so it's a, it's a, it's a form of energy medicine. I also actually took the aquas, began taking them, and found that uh, they really had a huge positive in, in impact on myself. So I also became a believer that they really do uh, wonderful things for the body. Now, this interview uh, is going to uh, encompass basic information about dehydration. So I think that's really important that everybody learns everything you need to learn about how dehydration can affect cellular health. And then there are also some questions from people that were asking uh, Dr. Bublik about um, about the, this particular homeopathic remedy that is uh, called the aquas. Again, he's one of the developers of that, and so uh, if anybody knows about uh, the aquas, it would be him. 
I'm going to also intersperse the program today with information for you about all sorts of free services that are out there that I have created to provide support uh, for you uh, if you are looking uh, to be able to find sustained relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. There's really a lot out there, and I've really not stopped to be able to give very specific information to people about where they can find these resources or really what they are all about. So the program is going to be twofold. First, we're going to give you a, a healthy dose of information about dehydration and the, uh, the dangers of dehydration and what you can do about it. Now, what I'm going to do for uh, this first segment of our radio program on dehydration is play you the first part of my pre-recorded interview with Dr. Jaroslav Ublik. So I first have a series of general questions about dehydration, and then we have many, many people who are listening to this teleseminar who actually are taking the aquas, and so I have some very specific questions about the aquas from a number of individuals. So first to the more general questions. It is silly to have a teleseminar devoted to dehydration. One person says, the answer is simple. I can hydrate my body by forcing myself to simply drink 8, 12, 14 glasses of water every day. So what's the big deal about dehydration? If it was as simple as simply drinking more water, a lot more people would be a lot more hydrated than they are. Um, it's pretty clear to me looking around uh, at the people in the, in the world around me that um, it's not that simple, um, simply forcing yourself to drink more water. You know, it, it may have a, a short-term transient impact on your state of hydration, but um, the analogy I, I guess I make is, um, and many people that, that work in, uh, in office spaces um, will be familiar with the, the sad and sorry um, potted plant in the, in the corner of the boardroom, um, which really gets neglected pretty badly. And uh, the fact is, if you water that potted plant, um, chances are most of the water will simply flow through it and end up in a puddle on the floor. I think many of us are like that potted plant. We've been neglected for so long in terms of providing adequate amounts of, of uh, hydrating fluids into the system that when we do pour a large amount in, most of it simply flows through. And uh, certainly it is many people's experience when they decide, um, you know, they have an, an epiphany and they decide that they're going to get really hydrated and start drinking their 8 or 10 or 12 glasses of water a day, that they find that all the, the only real impact on them is the fact that they spend a lot more time going to the bathroom. Um, this suggests to me that, and has, has long, uh, and we've supported this with research, as has long been shown, uh, by us to be the fact that there are two pathways of hydration in the body. Um, there is short path and long path hydration. Short path is into the body, uh, into, into, the, into the mouth and into the uh, digestive tract, into the circulation, straight into the kidneys and then down to the bladder and out, um, with very little of that um, fluid ending up impacting the hydration of the actual individual cells. And then there's long path hydration where that that, um, that circulating fluid does manage to get out of the, out of the circulation into um, extracellular fluid, then into the cells where it um, carries nutrients in, and then back out of the cells where it carries toxins out, back into the circulation, and then through the kidneys to the bladder. And that long path hydration is what we're looking for, and that unfortunately does get switched off with neglect. Um, and simply pouring more water into the system doesn't switch it back on again. And you need 
to take some sort of proactive step. Um, we believe that aquas are a, a good uh, example of that, but there are there are probably other things that you can do to to provoke that um, long path hydration. Why is it that as we age, our bodies become more and more dehydrated, or at least it seems that's the case? Well, that's a that's a an interesting question, and um, it may well be that. Um, uh, we're looking at that question the long way around. Maybe it is that our bodies age because they become more and more dehydrated. Um, I would put it to you that um, perhaps if we're able to maintain the levels of hydration in the cells, then many of the age-related um, uh, processes of degeneration would actually be slowed. Um, and um, so it's certainly true that dehydration, increasing dehydration and Aging go hand in from the point of view of putting, uh, making sure that we stay hydrated, and and in doing so, um, that process will actually be slowed. I'm not sure we can stop it completely because um, uh, there are there are other factors at play here, and I'm not saying that hydration is the only factor that's important in the aging process, but certainly it is it is a significant one, and I think if we can manage it, then we can uh, gain some some anti-aging benefits. Why is it that a well-hydrated body is so essential to being able to eliminate toxins in the body? Well, I, I guess um, the, uh, the analogy that I like to make here is um, for, for you to think about uh, uh, the ebb, ebb and flow of the tide. Um, the water that's available in the body is a major amount of moving matter um, that is able to move in and out of cells. Uh, and it is, in fact, the mechanism by which um, all nutrients are brought into cells and also all toxins are taken out of cells. If the, um, if the, if the volume or, or the mass of water that's moving in and out of cells is low, then the ability for nutrients to be taken into the cells is reduced and the ability of toxins to be removed from the cells is reduced. So simply in increasing the available uh, masses of fluid that um, can move in and out of cells uh, will both improve the uptake of nutrients and also the clearance of toxins. So it's a very important for the body to be well hydrated to facilitate the clearance of toxins. There is a, a great deal of interest in understanding different ways a person can go about hydrating their body. And I got a list of, um, actually, uh, most of them are foods or beverages. And I'd like to, to give these to you so that you can give us some perspective on how much they help or hurt the hydration process. The first on my list is... Salt. And so the idea here is, oh, well, if I just eat really salty foods, that'll make me thirsty and I'll drink more water. Good idea. Uh, a little flawed because the issue there is that with the intake of the uh, salt and primarily the sodium in the salt, um, the body uh, seeks to maintain the uh, concentration of sodium in tissues across a very narrow range. And um, the way it does that, um, certainly if you take too much salt into the body is to turn up the thirst reflex so that um, you consume a uh, proportion more fluid and therefore dilute out the uh, the sodium that's present in the system 
um, and, and ultimately flush it through to the kidneys where it can be released. Um, so simply taking more salt, um, there may be a couple of instances, um, exercising very hard in, um, in, in high temperatures where there's a lot of salt loss um, that can exacerbate the dehydration effect of, of that exercise. Maybe a situation where some additional salt intake might help hydration uh, homeostasis, but um, in most cases um, using additional salt to simply promote more drinking will not result overall in an increased hydration state. What about energy drinks? Um, well, with energy drinks, um, we have a couple of issues. Firstly, we have the, uh, the fact that um, they do contain fluid, so that's a good thing. Secondly, we have the fact that they do contain electrolytes, and um, with what we've just said about um, sodium, um, that can be appropriate where those electrolytes are necessary, but it can also uh, be unhelpful where they're not. And thirdly, energy drinks contain calories, calories in the form of carbohydrate. In the process of metabolising that carbohydrate, generate some new water um, in the body. So carbohydrate is composed of carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. We breathe in additional oxygen. Um, we use that to burn the carbohydrate and we end up with carbon dioxide, which we expire, and some water fraction. So it's possible to carry some extra water um, into the body by the, the burning of that carbohydrate. Um, but fundamentally, um, uh, the, the problem for most people is that they don't completely burn the carbohydrate. They have some residual carbohydrate, um, and, and those extra calories you know, may not, in fact, be helpful for the individual. But um, the source of fluid in, in energy drinks probably um, is, uh, is, makes them quite useful, but for most people, except those who really need that en extra energy and the electrolytes, um, something like water or, um, or dilute fruit juices uh, are, are probably a better way to hydrate. How about coffee and tea? The issue with coffee and tea, and we should probably include in, in, in this part of the, the story alcoholic beverages, um, is that um, caffeine um, and many of those xanthine-type compounds and uh, alcohol um, have a diuretic effect. So they will, in fact, turn up um, the, the gain on the filtering capacity of the kidneys, and uh, the consequence of that is that we end up losing fluid um, from, the, from the system through this diuretic effect. So um, very weak tea, green tea, um, dilute um, tea-based drinks are probably okay um, in moderation, but um, the stronger uh, coffee and uh, certainly stronger alcoholic beverages um, probably result generally in a net water loss um, with the consequence of increased dehydration. Next on my list is soft drinks like colas. Well, again, um, they contain um, uh, generally carbohydrate. So um, for many people, um, that additional, uh, those additional calories are not something they necessarily need. In the case of cola in particular, cola um, does often contain amounts of caffeine. The cola drinks often contain amounts of caffeine, and in fact caffeine is hidden in many soft drinks these days. Um, so that has a diuretic effect. And so look, I, you know, I don't certainly have any kind of prohibition on soft drinks, but um, I think there are better choices that you can make um, if you're looking to, to, to hydrate.
um, than than soft drinks. How about milk? Um, look, milk is a perfectly good hydrating beverage. Um, it um, you know if it's if it's something that the individual can tolerate. Um, there are a lot of people these days who um, have various food intolerances, of which lactose is a common one, and so uh, conventional cow's milk may not be appropriate. But um, uh, for those that, that do tolerate milk, um, it uh, it can you know be a, a, a an adequate um, source of fluid. Does contain some protein and some calories, and um, so again for those people who are concerned about their calorie intake, um, it may not be the ideal choice. Um, when given the alternative of something as simple as water, but there's certainly nothing wrong with it. And you know, for someone who is desiring some additional calcium in their diet, perhaps um, it's useful. Although um, there are some questions I think around our ability to absorb calcium from from dairy foods anyway. For many of us, you've been listening to my pre-recorded interview with Dr. Jaroslav Bublik, a PhD type researcher who is uh, Australian, but also an international expert on dehydration. What really are the symptoms of dehydration? Many people tell me, well, I don't know whether I'm dehydrated or not. How would they be able to know? Well, I think the, the reason that dehydration um, is such a difficult um, issue to, to really manage is that the symptoms are... Um, are not particularly obvious until the level of dehydration is quite extreme. Um, so if you encounter someone who is significantly dehydrated in an acute way, that is they've been out um, you know, exercising hard at high temperatures um, or they've simply had no fluid intake for a lengthy period of time, then typically they'll be tired, <clears throat> they'll be um, lethargic in terms of being able to maintain any muscle tone, um, they will often be confused. Um, but this is an extreme sort of end state level of dehydration. That's not where most people are most of the time. Most of us are at a point where we are only fractionally dehydrated. Um, and the symptoms of that are much harder to pick. Um, for some people, uh, there are, I mean, there are a whole series of little tests that people can can use and, and certainly which physicians can use to identify um, the advancing stages of dehydration in, including um, picking up a small amount of skin on the back of the hand between the thumb and the forefinger and seeing how quickly it returns when you let it go. So you pick up a, a little roll of skin and, and let it go. It's not a particularly ac accurate um, way of, of measuring dehydration and certainly depends a lot on other factors like the age of the person and so on. It's a way that you can uh, you can monitor, I guess, to some degree. But um, overall, those are those are, are about the limit in terms of um, being able to measure these things by symptomatology. We have scientific techniques for measuring the relative state of hydration, but obviously they're not available to most people. So um, the simplest way to address the issue is to uh, make sure that you take steps to maintain an optimal level of hydration at all times and never allow these um, these signs and symptoms to, to creep into your um, into your experience. Um, and I know that's kind of avoiding the question, but um, the reality is for most of us that's the best way to approach it. 
You have lived in many different places in the world, Australia at San Diego. Are there really any differences in the water uh, that you find in different locations in the world? Or is water, water, water? Is it all the same? Uh, look, I think there are um, significant differences um, as, as I travel around. Um, I think the, the, uh, the biggest differences I see is between uh, water in places where the water catchments are very close to the point of end use. So in a place like Melbourne where I come from, we have uh, mountain catchments not very far from the city and so the water quality is, um, is pretty good out of the tap. Having said that, um, for, for the last few years we've had a drought um, in uh, southeastern Australia and um, the amount of water that's flowing into the catchments has been reduced and so the water authorities have taken the uh, decision um, some time ago to uh, to chlorinate the water um, in order to protect the water bacteriologically for the uh, for the end user. Um, other places I've been to in the world um, where the amount of um, chlorine protection varies um, makes the water either usable or not. Here in Southern California, um, frankly, I have a pretty hard time drinking the tap water. Um, we certainly use a water filter here or buy bottled water um, for consumption, um, but there are you know, plenty of places in the world where the, the tap water is probably of, of ad- adequate quality, and really I guess that's something that each person needs to look at in their, in their own uh, particular area. Um, what I would say about um, these various water protection um, additives such as chlorine uh, is that um, I always use the analogy of going to the supermarket to buy um, something perishable like some meat or some chicken or some fish and uh, typically in a modern supermarket that's presented to you on a little styrofoam tray with some uh, some uh, plastic wrap around it um, and nobody would consider going home and simply throwing the whole package in the pan or on the barbecue. You will always remove the, the packaging that has been put there to protect that perishable item from bacteriological exposure. And I think we should look at water the same way. Um, Water is a a sensitive product that um, will readily pick up contamination from whatever environment it's in. And so the water authorities, I think, quite wisely um, protect it. Um, In the case of water, they do that by putting additives in. And I think we should remove those additives in the same way that we remove the packaging on the meat before we use the water. If you're fortunate to live in an area where there's no packaging around your water, well, well and good, go ahead and use it. But if you're in an area where there is these additive chemicals, then you should certainly look at removing them in some way. Um, and a, an appropriate water filter is a good way to do that. And failing that, I think pre-packaged bottled water where um, the packaging is in fact the package and it's much easier to remove is, is a better way to approach the, uh, the issue of quality water. Some people approach the challenge of dehydration using structured water products, which are more and more found out in the marketplace. Can you say something about what these products really are and uh, how, how they help? Water is a very interesting material. Um, people talk about water as H2O, uh, two hydrogen atoms bound to an oxygen atom. But the reality is that um, liquid water... Um, the the type that we drink 
um, is, has in fact a, a whole range of higher order structures. So typically um, in a nice pure form of liquid water, those H2O molecules are associated into rings and chains and clusters. Um, and it is this hydrogen bonding between individual water molecules that gives water some of its particular um, biophysical properties such as um, surface tension and um, its um, solvent capacity and these sorts of things. Um, a number of uh, people have attempted to, um, uh, I guess, address the issue of higher order structure in water um, by producing what are purported to be structure modified waters. So the thinking here is that um, in a very pure water which has been recently condensed from the gas phase, so that's uh, rainwater in a cloud or um, perhaps even the water that falls in a mountain stream, the clusters are re reasonably small in size. Um, typically, you know, the, the smallest cluster we typically find would be six water molecules in a ring, um, but um, often larger clusters than that are found in that kind of water. But as water um, is um, run through pipes and stored in dams or reticulation systems or in, um, or in packaging for that matter, uh, it's understood that larger order structures do form. And um, one of the hypotheses is that these larger structures um, have a more difficult time penetrating into cell walls and, and passing through cell membranes and therefore are inferior in terms of conducting nutrients into, into cells. In response to that concept, um, certain companies have uh, developed methodologies for creating structured waters where the water clusters are um, said to be smaller. So even down to the point where there are some companies that um, claim to have water clusters of just five water molecules. Now, um, I think this is a very interesting concept, um, and there is a certain amount of science that supports the possibility of creating small water clusters, but thermodynamically they're not um, particularly stable, and water has a tendency to always accrete into larger order um, structures. So the ability of something that is a small cluster to stay as a small cluster in a package so that it can end up in that form in the hands of the end user, I think are still under something of a question. And so um, I don't particularly go looking for those sorts of structured waters. Um, I think there are some, um, some technologies now available for creating particular structured waters in situ um, so that uh, you would put conventional water in at one end of some sort of device and out of the other end of the device you would get um, some structure modified water. Um, that may, assuming the technology works, that may be a better way of going about it than buying pre-packaged structure modified waters. But I think the, um, the jury is still very much out as to how well these, um, these approaches um, optimise the hydrating capacity of the water. Um, so yeah, I, I remain a little sceptical about that whole area. I've got a series of questions about what good hydration in the body can do. Can good hydration address the symptoms of diseases? Look, I, I think hydration is such a fundamental issue in the human body that it is inevitable that at some 
um, level, they are implicated in, in many disease states. Now, as to how direct and causal that relationship is, I think that probably um, varies uh, across a range of diseases. But, um, you know, I, I think most people would accept that in order to be truly well, we need to have adequate, adequate amounts of nutrition um, of all of the sort of major nutrient groups. So we need adequate amounts of vitamins and adequate amounts of minerals and appropriate amino acids and essential fatty acids and so on and so forth. Um, I think it's important that we think of water as a nutrient. I think it's a critically important nutrient, in fact, arguably the most critically important nutrient. And so making sure that we have adequate amounts of it available for all the processes that it's involved with, I think, is, is you know, uh, of um, undeniable importance in terms of creating wellness. Now, how much water is implicated in particular disease states? Well, at the very acute um, end of things, if you are acutely significantly dehydrated, it's life-threatening. Um, we can live without oxygen for but a few minutes. We can live without water for really um, only a, a matter of uh, 20 to 40 hours. We can live without most food-borne nutrients for literally days. Um, so water is clearly a critically important nutrient in that acute um, situation. How much water is in, implicated in um, in other diseases? Well, there have been a number of commentators who have said that water or dehydration, lack of water, is implicated in virtually all disease states. I'm probably pretty comfortable with that as a as a concept. Um, I think certainly you know diseases of of the uh, of the excretion uh, processes in the body, kidney disease, and these sorts of things, water probably has a, a very important role to play. You know, when we come, and the topic partially of today is talking about Parkinson's, um, I think, you know, all we can say is that since we've had the tool in our hands of the aqua formulas, which has allowed us to um, intervene in a, um, or hypothetically intervene in the hydration process in the body, and we have seen some uh, impact of that on the progression and development of Parkinson's symptoms in certain people, then I would certainly suggest that there's some linkage between the state of hydration and Parkinson's disease, but exactly whether that's a causal um, relationship remains, I think, to be um, borne out in, in much more sophisticated research than what we've done so far. This is Robert Rogers. You're listening to a pre-recorded interview that I had with Dr. Jaroslav Bublik on uh, dehydration. I want to now talk about the next uh, free support service that's available through uh, Parkinson's Recovery, and this is one that I've done a very poor job of explaining to people. Uh, and let me first uh, tell you why I created this particular support system. Uh, we've been working uh, with individuals that have the symptoms of Parkinson's now for a number of years, and consistently uh, there's one observation that uh, we began to notice was repeated from person after person. We would uh, work with individuals, and uh, we would notice improvements, in fact, very large improvements in their mobility, in their ability to uh, have facial expressions, in their ability to talk, in their ability uh, to be able to function in all aspects of living. 
and uh, the overall appearance, too, would dramatically shift uh, for the better. I don't want to suggest we were observing people were symptom-free, but we clearly, as we were tracking individuals as we worked with them, we noticed uh, uh, very large improvements and exciting improvements. But when we actually asked people, well, so how have you been feeling? What we noticed was that the reports did not mirror our own observations. So the first question was, well, are we just deceiving ourselves? Are we seeing something that really is not there? And I concluded, no, no, these... um, these observations are very real. I mean, we had pre-pictures, we had pre-videos, post-videos. If, if we showed those to other people, they would say, whoa, you know, is that the same person? That's a remarkable improvement. So what I realized, and this is certainly verified from the research literature, people, myself included, my hand is raised, are really not able to monitor our own progress toward health and wellness. So if we are working against a belief template that says, once I have these symptoms, I'm going to always get worse, then, and if I'm not able to transform that negative belief system into a positive belief system, then very clearly, uh, if I have any bad day, I'm going to say, oh, right, there it is, I'm really getting worse, and oh, gosh, everybody was right. So what I decided to do was to develop a support system anybody can use for free to track your symptoms across time. Now, it's called Symptom Tracker. I hired a program to basically program an interactive system so that you can go into this program at any time of the night or day, uh, any year, and basically answer a standard research instrument that's called the Parkinson's Disease Questionnaire 39. This is something that uh, I've seen in, in many, many research studies, which is used to track the effectiveness of one treatment or another. Now, what you'll do is you'll uh, basically have to register yourself, which uh, requires that you enter an email address, uh, and, and you also need to uh, do a password for yourself. And that's it. You're not putting in any names whatsoever. So this is entirely anonymous. Nobody knows who you are except yourself. And basically, you, all you have to do to register is you've got to put in a, a username and then a, a password that you'll, you'll want to remember. And then you answer this uh, Parkinson's disease questionnaire uh, 39. In other words, these are 39 questions that you'll answer, and you'll get a baseline of your symptoms today. In other words, you'll see the way it is uh, that you're at in the current situation. And then what you can do across time, in other words, two weeks uh, later or a month later or three months later or whenever you're ready, you simply go back into the very same uh, symptom tracker system. You enter your username, uh, I mean your email address, whatever, which one you gave, and you enter your password, the one that you uh, you selected. You get into the program and you answer the very same 39 questions a second time. And then you get a statement of where you are at today relative to where you were at when you first answered the Parkinson's disease questionnaire 39. In other words, you can track your progress. How many times can you do that? It's limitless. So basically you can, you can begin to plot your progress across time, across days, across weeks, across months, across years, and you'll be able to track uh, which areas are improving. Of course, you may see some uh, deterioration in one or another area, which would alert you to be able to be sure and talk with those about your healthcare professional or your doctor. So it allows you to see your progress, and I think what you'll notice is 
uh, since you're listening to this program, you're, you're, you're being proactive. You're beginning to experiment with uh, treatments and modalities that we know uh, are helping people. What you're going to see is uh, a, a, a track of improvement in terms of your symptoms, which is going to give you reinforcement to continue experimenting with continue to seeking out alternative therapies. It's called Symptom Tracker. It will always be free. So this is not the kind of system where, okay, you sign up, great, I tracked my system uh, for a year, it's very helpful, and then all of a sudden there's an announcement, well, if you want to get back into the system, you're going to have to start subscribing or paying or something silly like that. No, this is, uh, this is a publicly available free service. Uh, I'm happy to pay for all the server, all the programming needs, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to mount this system. We'll be actually applying some improvements uh, to the program here in the next several months. It's called Symptom Tracker. Here's how you get into it. On the main Parkinson's Recovery website page, that's www.parkinsonsrecovery, that's all one word, .com, on the main page, which is a very simple page, you'll see the term uh, track your symptoms right there on the page. You just click on the icon, and what you'll come to is a page that will say register. Now, I have to confess, uh, I haven't done a very good job of explaining what this is. It's just basically a, a plain page. And so uh, what you'll want to do is just register, and then you get in, you answer the questions, and you'll get your baseline, and you're off and running. If you have any questions about getting in or tracking your symptoms, you can always send me an email, robert at parkinsonsrecovery.com. For those of you who are listening and have already started tracking your symptoms, if you haven't uh, answered the questions recently, get in there and answer the questions and see where you're at. The point is that this is a motivational instrument to show you, whoa, I didn't realize, I had forgotten that uh, I was in such a state three months ago or four months ago. We forget. We don't remember really how we're feeling in the moment. So let me suggest that uh, use Symptom Tracker. It's, it's available. It's there. It's up. It works. It's been tested. And you'll be able to uh, be amazed at uh, how you're doing in terms of your progress. And it gives you a, a report that you can take to your doctor and say, look, notice I'm better here and here, but there seems to be a problem here. And have some discussions about what kinds of uh, next steps you could take in order to be able to address those particular issues. It's a way of transforming the false belief that you're going to deteriorate over time. You'll be able to see evidence, clear evidence that, whoa, you are getting better. Now we return to my pre-recorded interview with Dr. Bublik. Can good hydration improve mental clarity? Again, I think I'd probably answer this by um, citing the the opposite um, situation. Um, I know for myself, when I was training for the marathon, that when I became significantly dehydrated, as was the case before I had access to the formulas, um, I could experience a a significant drop in mental clarity um, as I became more and more dehydrated to the point where um, I didn't even have the clarity of mind to consume more water, um, which is a pretty important thing to do when you're dehydrated. So I think mental clarity... Uh, is certainly something that disappears with um, with increasing dehydration. Now, on a day-to-day basis, at the, the more modest alterations of hydration state that we would see in, in day-to-day life, look, I actually, I actually think it is pretty important. Um, as a neuroendocrinologist and a neuroscientist, um, you know, one thing that you can say about the uh, 
um, the central nervous system is that it's a pretty wet place. Um, most of the tissues in there are 99% plus um, water and um, I think we would then assume that all we have to do is perturb that environment by a small fraction to see dramatic changes in, um, in how well the environment operates and so uh, I, I think I'd, I'd be very comfortable to say that um, uh, reduced hydration has an impact on mental clarity. Can good hydration improve digestion? I think that, again, here I have a lot of anecdotal evidence for, for this um, with the work that we have been doing with the aquas over the last 15 years. Uh, probably one of our most common um, testimonials that we receive from people is that, it has, that, that getting on the aqua formulas and improving hydration has had an effect on, um, on their digestive processes. Um, one place where hydration or the, the presence or, uh, or availability um, of water certainly has an impact is um, on, the, uh, on the activity in the colon. Uh, the, the colon is the, the, the most terminal part of the, of the um, digestive system, is one of the, the few areas of the body where um, water can be resorbed um, from the external environment. And um, certainly people who are dehydrated will, will frequently um, experience changes in the, in the frequency of, of, um, of bowel movements. And if that is rectified by proper hydration, then that will often address that problem very, very quickly. So at that end of things, certainly. Now, if we go back up to the top of the digestive system, to the stomach, it would appear that maintaining an adequate level of hydration is critically important in um, the appropriate secretion of gastric acid. So when you first consume food, the first thing the body does is um, begin the digestive process with um, an outpouring of gastric acid. And in a dehydrated individual, that gastric acid is of reduced volume and, and um, lesser quality. And therefore, that digestive process does not get off to a good start. Now, as to what happens in between, um, not enough research, I think, has been done, but given the uh, importance of the um, bacterial um, ecology of the, the rest of the digestive tract, um, I suspect that uh, maintaining a proper level of hydration throughout the digestive tract is probably pretty important, um, if not critical, to, to digestive function. Can good hydration soften skin tissue and texture and make us look younger? I think, Robert, this is um, this is this is probably one of the hot button issues for uh, <laughs> for so many people. Um, here in Southern California, we have a, um, or, or in San Diego in particular, we have a um, uh, a local newspaper called the Reader. When I lived here in in the mid 80s, uh, most of the advertisements in the Reader were for um, places to go and drink and party on a Friday night. And now, virtually all of the advertisements in the Reader are for plastic and reconstructive surgery, which suggests to me there's been a wholesale change in the uh, attitude of people in Southern California. I don't want people to think that um, they can take the aquas and look 20 years younger. However, I think maintaining a proper level of hydration um, can absolutely have a, make a difference to the appearance of the skin. Um, the skin is a hydrated tissue, just like all the tissues in our body. 
um, as it becomes dehydrated, it um, exhibits some very obvious signs of dehydration and that little skin fold test that I talked about earlier is a classic example of exactly the sort of thing that um, that the skin will manifest. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think uh, maintaining good levels of hydration um, can make a difference there. Um, but whether or not this is the, um, the magic look 20 years younger pill, I don't know. Can good hydration control a person's body weight? The studies that have been done on the mechanisms that provoke the behavioural responses around consumption of food suggest that in people where the um, where the hydration their hydration status is, has been ignored for a long period of time, there can be central nervous system confusion between a thirst response or a thirst cue and an eating cue. So to explain that a little more, um, we have a filtration, an, an information filtration system in our in our brains called the reticular activating system and it's this system that allows us to filter out um, extraneous information and allow, allow us to focus on particular issues. So um, that's the best example of this is that if you're in a crowded room and you can often hear your name being spoken across the other side of the room even though you weren't aware that those people were talking about you. What's going on here is that you're actually taking in all the information across the whole uh, room, but you're filtering most of it out. Most of it's not winding up in your consciousness. But when your name pops into the conversation, that comes straight through that filter. Now think about that filter um, acting on the responses that uh, your body's tissues keep sending out for your, you to drink more water or eat more food. And again, if you ignore these things over a long period of time, which is typically what people who are dehydrated will do, um, then that filter actually gets very good at, at filtering out a thirst cue and calling it noise. And so there is potential at least for confusion between, you know, an I am thirsty message and an I am hungry message. And certainly what we've observed in practice in certain people who have started uh, using the formula and getting better hydrated is that they become much better at differentiating what is an I am thirsty message from an I am hungry message with the consequence that they drink more but eat less and this has an impact on their body composition. Now it's certainly not the case with everybody um, but I think in certain individuals where that is the reason uh, for, their, um, for their body composition um, then you know, this can actually have quite a profound effect. Carl from Portland asks, how do you know if you are taking too little or too much of the aqua drops? You probably can't know if you're taking too little, um, except that they won't be having their desired effect. Um, as far as taking too much, in someone who is otherwise well, we've found that there is probably no real upper limit on the amount you can use. I've certainly, um, in trials, used significant amounts of the formula with, with no real um, deleterious effects, nor, might I add, any additional effects. So there is a, a threshold for the effect, um, which can't be pushed any further by increasing the dose. 
I would say, however, that um, certainly the research that John Coleman's been doing with people with Parkinson's disease, the situation is very different. And so I want to caution um, those listeners who have that range of conditions uh, that they should um, use the formulas with a great deal of care initially until they have determined what is a, an appropriate dose for them. And we've been surprised actually by how small those doses sometimes are. Uh, in the case of John himself, um, he started out using one drop of the formulas. Normally I would use six to seven drops, typically morning and evening, and he found that one drop um, already had quite a profound effect on him. So um, we certainly recommend that in someone who wants to use these formulas to manage um, a, a, a situation such as Parkinson's disease, it's probably best to engage with a, an appropriately qualified and experienced health professional. Um, you, can, you can do that online with John himself and um, I think there are a number of other health professionals elsewhere in the world now who have gained some experience with the use of the formulas and can advise on those things. But um, um, for, for people who are otherwise well, I mean, our, our recommendation of five to seven drops seems to um, be an optimal dose for most people, and that's the reason we recommend it, obviously. Um, but for people with those, um, those range of conditions, um, some care must be taken. Carl from Portland also asks, how does the aqua drops help improve PD symptoms? That is a very good question, and it's one that I would probably um, hand pass to, to someone like John, who has far more experience in this area. I will give my perspective on it, and that is that we, we spoke earlier about the central nervous system, and clearly Parkinson's exists as a consequence of some deterioration of certain parts of that central nervous system, and it makes sense to me, um, although we're yet to demonstrate this mechanistically, that if you hydrate um, the organism, you hydrate the central nervous system, and if you hydrate the central nervous system, then some of the deficits that accrue as a consequence of the uh, advancing condition may be slowed. How exactly that works at a, at a cellular level or even more importantly at a biomolecular level, um, we still don't really know enough about um, this whole area to um, to comment in any meaningful way, but um, and and the reality is that even within the the group of people who have used the uh, the aqua formulas um, as an adjunct to the management of, of these sorts of conditions, not everyone is a responder. So it's clear that we're not impacting the fundamental mechanism, um, but um, but obviously are able in some cases to impact some of the, uh, the consequential mechanisms. So um, I can't really comment any more in any more detail than that on that one. Elisa from Austin, Texas. How can you tell if the aqua hydration formula is succeeding? Is there a test that can show that your tissues and or cells are adequately hydrated? For Lisa, there certainly are um, some diagnostic tools that can be used to measure whole body hydration. There are simple techniques such as weight. These are fraught with a lot of error, so they're probably not useful in most situations except 
extremely well controlled situations. There are techniques such as bioimpedance measurements where we actually measure the impedance um, of an electrical current that's sent through the body and uh, use that to determine um, body composition and from that hydration. But none of these techniques, all of these techniques look at whole body hydration, none of them look at hydration of, for instance, the central nervous system or in particular um, the tissues or cells that may be affected in a condition such as Parkinson's. So that's a long answer um, for what really probably could have been shortened to, no, there are no, no, no techniques you can use to measure these things for a Parkinson's patient. Um, we have done measurements uh, using other techniques such as kinesiological biofeedback mechanism uh, type tests and um, they could be quite useful and certainly people that have access to a, a well-qualified and experienced practitioner who is able to do kinesiological measurements may get some um, information about how they're going um, on any particular uh, therapeutic strategy um, by making those sorts of measurements. But as far as um, uh, an analytical measurement um, or, or something like that, there's nothing that we can do at this stage. You've been listening to a pre-recorded interview with Dr. Jaroslav Bublik. This is Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. The next free service I want everybody to know about is the Parkinson's Recovery chat room. Now, that's not the chat room you may be connected to right now on the Blog Talk radio uh, system. It's the Parkinson's Recovery chat room, and you can get access to that from the main page, parkinsonsrecovery.com. There's a little icon with the blue, green, and red little people. You just click on that. It'll take you to the chat room main page. And all you need to do is to enter whatever name you'd like for people to know you as. It can be Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, doesn't really matter. You then get into the system, the chat room system, and you'll be able to have dialogue with other individuals. Use it. It's free. It'll always be free. It's one of the services that we pay for. We uh, employ a company to be able to maintain this for us. So it's really helpful to be able to chat with other individuals about certain issues that are up for you. One of the ways to do that is through the Parkinson's Recovery chat room. We now return to final part with Dr. Jaroslav Buplet. David from Lilywap, Washington. If possible, simply describe how cells tell each other their situation. For example, when one cell begins to get hydrated, how does the cell let other cells know they might be faced with the same condition? There are multiple mechanisms by which cells talk to one another. We can probably use the analogy um, of, uh, of us in modern society. We have, most of us, multiple ways of communicating with other people. We can um, stand face-to-face -face with them and, and simply speak. If we're in the vicinity, perhaps use things like sign language and so on. Um, as we get further apart from people, we can use uh, tools such as the telephone or email. We can communicate across broader groups of people with uh, the mass media, newspapers and, and television. So there are multiple ways that humans communicate. Cells are pretty much the same. Cells can talk when they're close to one another um, using... Uh, the equivalent of speech and or sign language or hand signals um, and this 
makes use of certain cell surface proteins which a cell that has undergone some changes um, can modify their cell surface proteins and the neighbouring cell can detect those changes and respond accordingly. Across broader uh, distances, and we're talking still microscopic distances in, in tissues, um, cells can secrete hormones um, that um, can affect cells you know, at whatever distance the hormone can be active in. These can be local hormones, um, local tissue factors and so on, right through to systemic hormones that are secreted by endocrine um, tissues into the circulation and spread through the whole body. We have a nervous system and the nervous system allows cells in one part of the body to um, generate some kind of signal that's transmitted via the nervous system to other parts of the body. So we have, I guess, analogous systems to speech, to um, to telephone and email and to mass media communication going on in our bodies all the time. Now, exactly how a cell that has become dehydrated or a cell that has been dehydrated and subsequently become more hydrated communicates that change of state to the cell surrounding it is something that isn't well known. Um, there is a, a series of um, hormones. Um, these are local tissue factors rather than long-distance circulating hormones um, that are secreted by cells as cells change their hydration state um, and these can result in the neighbouring cells responding by either opening up water channels in their membranes to take up more available extracellular fluid or closing them down. So that's the, um, uh, th that's the local effect. Now, we also have a whole series of uh, very potent endocrine hormones that are secreted by uh, pituitary and hypothalamus that are circulated um, all through the body that um, impact receptors on virtually every type, cell type in the body that um, notify the cell of, of the global um, hydration status, the global um, sodium status and, and so on. So. Um, it's a pretty complex interplay between these local factors and these these um, large-scale, long-distance endocrine hormones. Brenda from Honolulu asks, why won't the aquas work diluting it in just water? Well, um, the aquas work perfectly well diluting in water. Uh, our recommendation has always been that the aquas... Um, in our hands, and, and these were a series of kinesiological studies done on a variety of subjects. In our hands, in those studies, the aquas worked better um, when put into a drink um, which contained some source of fructose. Now, um, when we looked further into the, um, into the mechanism here, the fructose was useful uh, in terms of uh, getting the fluid from the gastrointestinal tract out into the circulation because a number of the the, uh, the channels by which fluid leaves the, the gut and enters the circulation are saccharide-triggered channels. So fructose is a, is a sugar and triggers those channels quite nicely. So that's the reason for the suggestion that one uses dilute apple juice and water um, as a vehicle for the aquas. But I have to say that I've put the aquas into um, virtually everything that you can drink out of a glass and um, they work 
to a greater or lesser degree in most things and they certainly work perfectly well in water. And um, when I'm travelling, for instance, I'll typically just put um, uh, my aquas into a water bottle um, and sip that water bottle throughout the flight and um, uh, experience a quite different um, level of, uh, of jet lag and, um, and uh, post-flight dehydration when I do that than when I don't do that. So putting them into water is perfectly fine. Uh, is that the AM or the PM that you do when you're doing the uh, flying? I generally use the PM when I'm flying. Again, no real rationale for that apart from the fact that in testing, the PM seems to work better in flight. I would say, however, if people are choosing to use the aquas as, a, as an aid to long-distance travel, that as soon as they arrive in their destination, they start using the AM and PM formulas according to local time. Um, and in fact, um, I've done some experiments where I've started using, particularly for instance flying uh, Australia to the United States, I've started using the AM and PM formulas according to the time of my destination for a couple of days prior to flying. And um, there, there, there does seem to be some, uh, some benefits in doing that in terms of resetting um, the body clock when you get to the destination, but um, certainly in flight I use the PM. Lola from Winstead. What type of water do you recommend people drink daily who are on the Aquas program? And there's a list of choices here. Filtered, distilled, purified, spraying, or some other type of water? And I, my recommendation is that you drink the the, the best quality water that you can get your hands on. Now, that will vary from person to person. If you are in a situation where you can afford a high-quality filtra- in-home filtration system, I think that's probably in the long term the, most, uh, the best and most cost-effective um, way of, uh, of having good quality water to drink and to cook with. Um, having said that, it's important that any filtration system is properly maintained over its lifetime to ensure the quality of the water that you're getting out of it. For people that can't afford a high quality, and the high quality ones are expensive, uh, high quality water purification system, um, then an appropriately filtered bottled water um, is, uh, is probably um, almost as good. Um, distilled water has certain applications. Um, I don't think drinking large amounts of it um, is something that I would recommend simply because um, Distilled water um, will generally result in a net movement of electrolytes into the water when that water arrives in the in the body. Um, in small amounts, I don't think that's a problem, but I think using large amounts of distilled water can theoretically at least deplete um, some of those electrolytes. And and for someone that um, that has a particular reason for doing that, that may in fact be a good thing to do. But generally, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, spring water, if you have real access, if you live, if you're fortunate enough to live in a place where you have access to a, a genuine, um, clean spring, then there's probably no better water on earth. But um, that would be a very small percentage of the people um, that I know on this planet. So um, uh, if you're in that situation, um, good luck to you, and, and certainly spring water would be fine. But um, uh, for the rest of us that live in big cities, um, a good water filter, I think, is the number one choice. 
Dr. Vora Vanadera from India says the following. As a part of my Parkinson's treatment, I take aquas one drop in the morning and the evening and drink eight to ten glasses of water for a period of three months. I feel if I increase my dose, my body reacts. For how long should I have to take the aquas? It's a really good question, and I guess it um, refers to the exact effect that um, certainly John Coleman has observed, and we have uh, heard of from many um, people with who have been using the aquas with their Parkinson's um, recovery program. Um, as far as exactly how long she may need to continue taking the aquas at that level, I really don't have an answer for that. I suggest that it's as long as it takes. It may well be that one drop is all she'll ever need to use and um, uh, that will deliver to her the benefits that she needs. Um, so I'm not suggesting that increasing the amount of the aquas in her situation would gain any additional benefit. You know, I mean, I, I guess the only way to test that is to um, periodically perhaps check in and just see whether a higher dose is uh, is is uh, required and or beneficial. This is where um, working with a, an appropriately qualified practitioner I think is a great thing because a technique such as kinesiology can be used to, um, without actually necessarily exposing the person to that higher dose, just check in and see whether a higher dose would be advantageous or not. If she's getting the benefits that she needs from one drop morning and evening, then um, then that's the, the dose that she should be using and, uh, un, until another piece of information comes along to change that. Many people have questions about homeopathy and exactly how it works. And moreover, the, the concern is I take one drop from each of these bottles every day and that's supposed to do something. Why isn't it the case that taking more drops is going to be better for me? I guess even now, 15 years after I was first exposed to homeopathy, it's one that I still, as a scientist, get slightly twitchy with. But here's my honest answer to this. I've used homeopathic remedies now in, in, as far as their, their presence in the aqua formulas for all that time. And in addition, I have used homeopathy many, many times through that 15-year period to manage other issues. Um, I've also used things like flower essences, which I think work um, along similar energetic lines. And so I've come to believe from an experiential point of view that um, these things work. Now, how exactly they do work is something that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I have the deep understanding to, to answer comprehensively. Um, my understanding in a broad sense is that we're talking about subtle energies here. Um, I think one of the reasons that the aqua formulas are so powerful is that the mechanism for conduction of those subtle energies through the biological world at least is water and because I guess we're working in that very realm and we have had a profound effect on many people. But as far as how homeopathy works um, you know, if we leave it as it has an impact on subtle energies and therefore it's a technology that doesn't fo follow the law of mass action where more is better, 
Um, that is the reason why, in some cases, one drop is, is all that's required. Um, John's invented a nomenclature called a K-dose, where you put one drop of a formula into a glass of water, fill it up with water, throw the water away, and then refill the glass. And it's the tiny fraction of that dose that was um, wet on the inside of the glass that um, provides the, the focus for dilution. Um, and in some cases, John has found that he can do that three and four times to the point where conventional um, science tells you that there's only a possibility that there is even one molecule of the original active material left in the glass. However, it works. Now, um, I'm not going to argue with the fact that it works and I'm not going to suggest to you that I understand in all, de in, in all its detail what this subtle energy is, but I would just simply offer that as the explanation um, in this situation. And it is, I must say, as I, as I mentioned as a scientist, the one part of all of this that, um, you know, I, I still find myself questioning from time to time, but the simple test for me is to stop using the aquas for a period of time and then use them again, and I'm quickly convinced that um, they do work. How do you know that the aquas are safe to take? I think the answer to this is uh, one based on the 15 years of experience that we have with that, that product. Very early in the piece, um, I suggested to Leone that we should go through all the regulatory processes for medicines in Australia. And so the aquas were taken through a regulatory process with the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA. Now, they are reputed to be the toughest regulatory body on the planet and having worked um, with them and now in a number of other regulatory regimes worldwide, I would say that the TGA would be close to the toughest regulatory authority on the, body, on the planet. And we did manage to get the aquas through the process of listing. As a consequence of that, we have had to keep for that 15 years rigorous uh, records as far as adverse reactions. We've had to document every single adverse reaction to anyone taking the aqua formulas over that period and we have to submit a report on that every year. And I'm very pleased to see, say that over that 15 years the file has exactly no pieces of paper in it. Um, there has not been one adverse reaction to the aqua formulas um, that's been documented um, in, in, um, in that reporting system over that 15 years and that tells me that we're dealing with a, a very, very safe um, form of, uh, of management tool and um, we're really proud of that record. It's, an, I think, an enviable one in the natural products industry and, and it's one of the reasons that I'm so comfortable talking about the aquas um, in any forum. I've been a runner my entire life, and I've just uh, recently begun thinking about uh, running marathons. If I take aquas, and I do, can I be disqualified because I'm taking the aquas? <laughs> you know, we've, Robert, we've never, we've never uh, approached the World Anti-Doping Agency and, and, uh, and asked them to test the aquas, but um, given that they're homeopathic medicines, um, I suspect if we did give them some to test, they would tell us there's nothing in the bottle. 
I think you're pretty safe there. Performance enhancing, well, perhaps, but um, only in a good way. There is a very small quantity of an alcohol in the bottles. Yes. And some people are allergic or somewhat concerned about that. Some people, I think, are putting the drops in very warm or even hot water. Uh, is there a problem with that if they do something like that? And, and the concern is about the alcohol that's in the drops. That's a realistic concern. And as I think you and I have spoken about, Leonie and I have looked over the years at um, other um, types of extracts to use. There are there are uh, glycerol extracts of some of these materials that that could potentially be substituted. But all the testing we've done suggests that um, they don't work uh, nearly as well as the alcohol extracts. The amount of alcohol that's in the aquas, once you put a couple of drops into a glass of of fluid and fruit juice and water or water, um, in relative terms, is is very very tiny. I do know that some people put it into warm or even hot water. Now, traditional homeopaths and certainly flower essence would tell you that those types of remedies are generally quite sensitive to extreme temperatures, so I don't think I'd be putting the aquas into extremely hot water just to drive off the alcohol. But again, in kinesiological testing, we, we have tested um, with with you know, we've taken the, the aquas on and off planes many times through x-rays, tested them um, and found them to be indistinguishable from from uh, bottles that haven't been subjected to that kind of um, uh, radiation. We've uh, tested them, you know, having sat in the, the boot of a very hot car for days if not weeks um, and again find no deterioration of their efficacy in that situation. So. We believe them to be pretty robust formulas, but um, by the same token, I, I'm not sure I'd be putting them into boiling water or uh, leaving them sitting in the bright sunlight on the kitchen counter every day. But they do seem to be reasonably resilient. So you've been listening to my pre-recorded interview with Dr. Jaroslav Buplik on dehydration. Uh, he does uh, talk quite a bit there toward the end about uh, the homeopathic treatment called AQUAS, A-Q-U-A-S, if you are interested in uh, getting more information about that, the website is www.aquas.us. Now, I've talked quite a bit about uh, all of the free services, or at least some of the free services that are available through Parkinson's Recovery. Let me give you that website one more time. It's www parkinsonsrecovery.com and that's spelled P-A-R-K-I-N-S-O-N-S R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y dot com and on the main website you'll see links to the services that I've just mentioned, a link to the Parkinson's Recovery chat room the actual address of that is parkinsonsrecovery.net N-E-T rather than dot com You'll have a link there also to the Symptom Tracker, the program that will enable you to be able to track your symptoms uh, over time, over the rest of your life for that matter. So there are many, many ways to get helpful information. There is a ton of information on the Parkinson's Recovery blog, and that's also accessible from that main website that I just gave to you. It's called Questions and Answers. And there, uh, many of the entries, the blog entries, are actually questions 
uh, that people have asked me and then my response based on uh, the research that I've done. So lots of information is available out there for you uh, to be able to get uh, support, insights, and help in the course of your experimentation on what kinds of things you can consider to help you get relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. This has been Robert Rogers in, uh, interviewing Jaroslav Bublik, a Ph.D. endocrinologist and expert on dehydration. And that's what's happening at Parkinson's Recovery. We're on the shores of the Puget Sound where all the men are handsome, all the women are smart, and all the children are truly loved. Know that you are on the road to recovery. Good day.